We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Trials and temptations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly light, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for your word and that your word to us is always a good word. And uh, so would you give us ears to hear this morning, whether we're convinced or unconvinced, whether we come into this room full of belief, whether we find ourselves having once believed and trying to figure out if we could ever believe again, or whether we just find ourselves riddled with doubt that you could actually ever exist. Are you really there? Would you give us ears to hear now? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me invite you to take your seats. Uh, We are starting a new sermon series this morning in the book of James. And uh, James, it's this short little book in the New Testament. It's an interesting book. Uh, It's an interesting book. It's only five chapters long. But it's an interesting book for for several reasons, really. First, the author. Did you you notice how he identifies himself in verse 1? James, just, just, his, just a single name, 
I mean, you know, the only people that identify themselves by a single name are people who are well-known. Beyonce, <laughs> Drake, Bono, Steph, you know, James, this guy simply says, James here, which means that people must have known who he was. Now, there are a number of James in the New Testament, but there are only two that are famous. There are only two that are really well known. One of them was Jesus' disciple, James. Jesus had a disciple named James, but Acts 12 tells us that he was beheaded by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. And this book was written after that, which means that there's only one other possible James that this could be. One other James who was so widely known that he could simply start off his book by saying, James. And everybody would know who he was talking about. When Jesus began his public ministry, the crowds were beginning to take notice. And he was doing all of these miracles and saying all of these incredible things. And in Mark chapter 6, it says that the crowds began to ask this question, where did he get his power? Where did he get such wisdom? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James? This is Jesus' little brother who's writing this book. But I want you to notice something. He doesn't, he doesn't begin his letter by saying, James, little brother of Jesus. I mean, if I was, was Jesus' little brother, that's how I would start my letter. Brent, little brother of Jesus, you know? <laughs> but that's not what he does. Look at, look at verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord is the New Testament's word for the Old Testament word, Yahweh. It's a reference to Jesus' deity. It's the same word that is used in the Old Testament to talk about the God who created all things, who made heaven and earth. Which, which brings us actually to really the main theme of James' James's book and kind of the main theme of our series that we're going to be looking at. And it's this, it's that when you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he's, he's God incarnate, that he is God who has taken on flesh and, and broken into the fabric of the universe, and that he lived and he died and he rose again in real space, time, in history, that's what the Bible actually calls saving faith. When you believe that, everything about your life begins to change. Everything. See, faith, according to Christianity, is not just having certain beliefs in your head. Some of you think that's what Christianity is. You know, being a Christian means you just believe certain things about God. You know, you can like pass the God test, you know, if you had to take it. Is that what, is that what faith is? Is it that easy? Yes and no, actually. Martin Luther said this. He said, 
We are saved by faith alone. That means that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love and approval. It comes to you by sheer grace. We are saved by faith alone, but Martin Luther says, but the faith that saves is never alone. And James puts it this way in in chapter 2, verse 14 and 17, which I think is kind of the hinge of the whole book. He says, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, there's a difference between a dead faith and a living faith. Uh, faith that is dead is all up here. It's just beliefs in your head. You can check the right boxes. But faith that is alive begins to work itself out into every corner of your life. Uh, It's kind of like a biologist. You know, biologists, what do biologists do? They study life. And biologists will tell you that there are seven properties that every living thing must have. Seven of them. Organization, metabolism, homeostasis, growth, reproduction, response to stimuli, genetic adaptation. I'm not going to go into detail in all of these because I don't know anything about them. (laughs) I actually had to text somebody. I Googled this and then I texted somebody in our church to make sure I wasn't going to sound like an idiot this morning. But, but, But here's kind of the point. Uh, biologists, they, they look for these seven things to determine whether or not an organism is a living thing, whether or not it's alive. And Christianity is actually no different. It says that if you have a living faith, there will be certain signs, signs of life that start to show up in your life. And that's what the book of James is all about. It is a book about how faith in Jesus, belief in Jesus affects your money and affects your prayer life and how it shapes your pursuit of justice and and how how you talk to other people, the words that you use and how you treat other people. Now, James, it's such a practical book. It is such a practical book. It is so down to earth about how Christianity works itself out Monday through Saturday in your life. Because it's really easy to come into this room and you, you kind of get an uplifting experience and you sing some songs and you hear, hear some, some teaching and then you just kind of leave and you, you just kind of, you know, we just kind of forget about it. And it has no real impact. And Christianity says that is not real faith. A living faith is an active faith that is a practical faith. And what we see today is that James starts in what is perhaps the most practical place possible. The most practical place in your life. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Trials are difficulties, trials are disappointments, trials are affliction, trials are even suffering. Now what question could be more practical than how to face trials and suffering in life? Because you will, all of us, and we have. 
And James, what James says is, there is a type of faith that makes it possible not just for you to endure these things, but to have joy in the midst of them. Don't you want that? Don't you long for a joy that not even the hardest things in life can take from you? And I'm not talking about some shallow version of happiness where you pretend that everything is okay when it's not. Christianity never does that. I'm talking about a sense of defiant joy that can stare even the hardest things and the saddest things that you will ever face and still stand. A joy that is so indestructible that it can hold up to anything that life brings at you. What if you could have a faith that could give you that kind of joy? James says you can. That's what this passage is about. And what we're going to look at this morning is this. James tells us four characteristics of this living faith and why it can bring this kind of joy. All right, here's the first. The first thing he tells us about this faith, this living faith, is that it expects trials. Look at verse 1 again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. James does not say if, if you face trials. He says when you face trials. And, and it's so easy to just read past that. But have you ever noticed how often we are surprised by trials in life? We say things like, I can't believe that happened to him. Or I can't believe that happened to her. Or even more, I can't believe this happened to me. Yeah, I never thought I would go through something like that. Have you ever said those words? I mean, many of us, we have a faith that is, that is so caught off guard when hardship and disappointment happens in our life. And I want you to know something. The Bible never talks this way. It's never caught off guard. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. Psalm 23, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not if I walk, but though I walk. And Jesus puts it about as succinctly as you can in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says this. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. G.K. Chesterton, who was, a, he was a famous Christian theologian, he said this, he said, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. <laughs> you see, Jesus is way more honest about the trials and the difficulties of life than we tend to be. He, he promised it, but we are so often surprised by it. And a faith that is surprised by suffering is faith, hear this friends, is faith that will never be able to rejoice in suffering. Faith that is surprised in suffering is faith that will never be able to rejoice in suffering. In fact, if you don't expect it, there will always be a double suffering. You won't just suffer the thing that you're suffering, but you will suffer from the surprise and the shock of that thing. The life has not gone the way you thought or hoped or wanted to. Now, we need to pause here for a moment. Because there's a lot of you in this room 
who are in the throes of trials. You are in the throes of suffering. You're, you're, you are holding back the tears as I'm talking right now. And I know some of the stories in this room, but I don't, I don't know all of them, but I will tell you from the ones that I know, there is enough, there's more than enough to go around. There are stories of deep sadness in this room and words telling you to not be surprised and to have joy could sound insensitive. And in fact, I'd actually go so far as to say that it is insensitive. When you are in the midst of trials, God has other words for you. Words like Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I am with you. Words like Psalm 56, you, O Lord, have kept track of all my sorrows and you have collected all my tears in your bottle. Words like Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You see, verse 2 is a verse that you should never quote to someone who is hurting. This is not a verse you should ever quote to someone who is hurting. In fact, I'd go so far as to say it's probably a verse you should never quote to anyone other than yourself. These are God's words for you. And you really need to hear them before the suffering, before the trial, or once the healing has begun, because they're not meant to be words for those who are in the midst of trial, so much as words to prepare us so we won't be caught off guard when trials come. What kind of faith can produce joy even in trials? A faith that expects them. Here's the second thing. It's a faith that endures trials. It doesn't just expect them, but it endures them. Look again at verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, I love how honest James is. He says, trials test your faith. That's, that's James's way of saying, when hard things happen in your life, part of you will want to abandon faith in God. You'll, you'll want to quit Christianity. You ever been there? You ever wanted to, to, to walk away from Jesus because of pain that has come into your life? Have you ever been so angry with God that you just want to, you just want to quit? You just want to give up? Have you ever felt like you were on the precipice of losing your faith because of your suffering? Maybe that is where you are this morning. God has not given you the career that you wanted. He hasn't given you the family that you wanted. He hasn't given you the spouse that you wanted. Or maybe the spouse that you have is one that you wish you didn't have. Or, or he hasn't taken the depression away and you have begged him. Or he hasn't taken the addiction away and you have begged him. Or he hasn't taken the eating disorder away and you have begged him. Or you have experienced painful loss 
in life. Loss of a job, loss of a marriage, loss of a parent, loss of a son, loss of a daughter, loss of a spouse. Or or maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're exploring these things and you say, this is exactly why I cannot believe. Because you look around and you see all of this suffering in the world and not just in the world, but you see see it in your own life and you think, how could a good God really exist? See, trials are a test. They, 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 They make you want to quit. And James is so honest about this. He's so honest about the fact that these things will cause us to doubt God's existence. Or if he is there, they'll cause us to doubt his love, his power, his care. Which is why, by the way, you get this whole bit about temptation in verses 13 through 15. It kind of feels like James is like changing the topic on us. But, you know, the word that's translated as temptation in verse 13 is actually the same word that James uses for the word trial in verse 2 and in verse 12. And the reason that you say, well, why, why, why not just translate it as the same thing? Well, the reason James can go back and forth between the word trial and temptation is because we experience both of them the same way. What is temptation? Temptation is nothing more than an opportunity to turn away from God. And so are trials. James says when they come, you'll want to quit. But don't. is what James says. Don't quit. Endure. Persevere. That's verse 4. Now, maybe the question you're asking is, well, how? Because <laughs> life is kind of hard right now. So how do I persevere? How do I keep going? And James is really practical about this. He he says there's two realities that you have to cling to. And one of them has to do with you and one of them has to do with God. The first is this. You cling to the fact that you do not see the whole picture. That when you look at the world and you see all the suffering in the world, you do not see the whole picture. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God. This is not talking about wisdom in general. This is talking about the wisdom that we need to get through suffering. And it's a wisdom that says, God, you have wisdom I don't. You see things I don't. You know things I don't. You have purposes that I don't. It is the wisdom of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Most of the time, we want to quit faith in the midst of trials. It's because we think we know how to run the universe better than God does, which is kind of an insane thought because we don't see the whole picture. And if you think you see the whole picture better than God, you will not be able to persevere. But if you know that you don't, then you will. Then you can endure. That's the first reality to cling to. Here's the second one. You cling 
to the goodness of God. And I use the word cling because you have to really fight for this. This is not a passive thing. This is an active thing. Because when you look out, there will be so much in the world that will say, that is not true. And you will be tempted to let go of the goodness of God, but you have to cling to it. Look at how James ends this long passage on trials in verse 17. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. See, everything in this world can change. And you know what? Everything in this world does change. Circumstances change. People change. Empires change. But there is one thing that never changes. God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, what I want you to notice about this is that James doesn't just say, God doesn't change. He brings our attention to, the, to, to one particular attribute of God that never changes. You know what it is? It's his goodness. That's what verse 17 is saying. And one, one commentator puts it this way. He says, God is not variably good. He is immovably good. He is ineluctably, in, ineluctably good. He is irremediably good. God does not have bad days. God can never be anything other than good. In this broken, rebellious, sin-torn world, he is still always invariably good. See, but our, our, our tendency is to think God is good only when our circumstances are good. That's when we think God is good, when life is going well which is why our joy is so circumstantial. It, it just ebbs and it flows. It, it's at the, we live under the tyranny of our circumstances. And that's why James does this whole bit in verses nine and 11 on the poor person and the rich person. It's kind of this other part as you're reading through, you're like, man, James is all over the place. You know, he's talking about trials and now he's talking about rich people and poor people. No, listen, he's not changing the subject. Money is maybe one of the most circumstantial ways that we look at joy. If you were poor, you were tempted to think that all of your problems would go away if you had more money. And if you have money, you are tempted to think that the worst thing that can happen to you is that you lose your money, which is why you think about it all the time. You see, we are so prone to locate our joy in our circumstances and to determine God's goodness based on our circumstances. But the living faith that James is talking about is totally different from that. And it actually flips it. It says, do not interpret God through the lens of your circumstances or through the lens of your trials or your suffering. It says, no, you interpret your trials and your suffering and your circumstances through the lens of God. If you interpret God through your circumstances, you will doubt his goodness. But if you interpret your circumstances through God, then you will cling to his goodness and you will fight for it even when you can't see it and even when you can't feel it. You'll endure. Living faith endures trials. It expects trials. Here, here's, here's the third thing. It is hopeful 
in trials. Now, there is a really important distinction we need to make this morning. James does not say, rejoice for your suffering. He's not a masochist. And I want you to know that the Bible never talks that way. You know what it says? It says that God actually grieves over our suffering. That he made the world to be absent of suffering. And that one day he is going to come back and he is going to heal the world. And he is going to wipe every tear from our eyes. James does not say, rejoice for your trials. He says, rejoice in them. <laughs> and you might think, joy? Rejoice in trials? Rejoice in suffering? What kind of world is James living in? James is living in a world where God can use the hardest and the saddest and the most painful things that you will ever go through for good. That's why we can rejoice. That's why we can be hopeful in it because God is always at work in it, growing you, changing you, transforming you, making you into a person who lacks nothing. That's verse four. Which is interesting language, isn't it? That you become, God is making you into a person, that through trials, God is making you into a person who is complete, not lacking anything. That, that, I mean, that's interesting. That, that in order to get to a place where you are lacking in nothing, you've got to lose something. That's what a trial is, right? It's losing something. It's losing a dream. It's losing a career. It is, it's, it's sometimes it's losing a person. And this is, this is so powerful what James is saying. He's saying that so many of us, we are missing something that we don't even know that we need. And often the only path to getting it is to lose something we thought we couldn't live without. I like to bring this illustration out once a year in a sermon. It's one, this is one of my favorites. Uh, it, it's from Jonathan Haidt. Who he, uh, he teaches sociology at, at NYU. And uh, I, I do not think that he identifies as a Christian, but he's done a lot of research on the way that our culture has developed this mindset that the best way to raise children and to nurture them into adulthood is to shield them from anything hard that might happen in their life. He says that we live in a culture of safetyism, and, and here's, here's the illustration. It's really more of a thought experiment. He says this. He says, imagine that you have a child and for five minutes, you're given a script of what, that, of, of what will be that child's life. You get an eraser. You can edit it. You can take out whatever you want. You, you, you read that your child will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for yours. And in high school, your kid will make a great circle of friends, but then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, this child will actually get into the college they wanted to attend, but while they're there, they will be in a car crash, and your child will lose a leg and go through a difficult depression. A few years later, your child will get a great job, then lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child will get married, but then go through the grief of separation. You get this script for your child's life and you have five minutes to edit it. 
Height says this, what would you erase? Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that would cause them pain? The great temptation in parenting is that you're constantly trying to swoop into our kids' educational life, relational life, sports life, every part of their life to make sure no one is mistreating them or disappointing them. We want them to experience one unobstructed success after another. But if you could wave a wand, if you could erase every failure, every setback, every suffering and pain, are you sure that it would be a good idea? Would it cause your child to grow up to be a better, stronger, more generous person? Is it possible that in some way people actually need adversity, setbacks, and maybe even something like trauma to reach the fullest level of development and growth? And then Hyde actually goes on to talk about how research has shown that people who live in undesirable circumstances, third world countries, in total poverty and suffering, tend to be much happier in life than those with wealth and privilege. Now, I think this is really interesting because have you ever had the thought, you know, when, when, when life goes south, have you ever had the thought, is God, is God punishing me? Did God let this happen because he's mad at me, because I've, I've done something wrong, because he doesn't love me? You know what James is saying? He's saying the exact opposite is true. He's saying, consider this. The reason that God brings trials into your life is not because he doesn't love you, but because he does. Because he is working even in the hardest, saddest things for your good. To make you into a wiser person a more patient person, a more compassionate person, a more humble person, a more joyful person. You know, that is the testimony. That is the testimony of countless Christians throughout history. That the hardest things they have gone through in life are the things that God has used for the most good in life. And I'll give you one of my favorite examples of this. It's a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was 17 years old, she was injured in a freak accident. She was diving into a swimming pool. Healthy 17-year-old. And she broke her neck. And for the last 55 years, she's lived life as a quadriplegic. And now she's actually battling cancer for a second time. This is a woman who has suffered immensely. And this is what she writes. She says, people ask me if God is good and if God has the power to do anything, why hasn't he healed you? And to this I reply, following Jesus most often leads Christians not to miraculous divine interventions, but directly into the fellowship of suffering. In a way, I've been drawn closer to the Savior, even with this breast cancer, there are things about his character that I wasn't seeing a year ago or even six months ago, and that tells me that I'm still growing and being transformed. I sure do hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner. 
And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I will stand next to my Savior and I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. And it never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. What incredible hope in the face of suffering. And you might hear that and you think, how can I be that hopeful when my heart is so broken? You know, good for her that she has seen God bring work, you know, work out of her pain. But I'm not seeing how God could work out of mine. I'm not seeing how he could bring any good out of what I've gone through. Well, that brings us to the last thing that James teaches us about this living faith. Look at the very last verse. You know, how is James going to wrap this whole thing up? (laughs) How's he going to end this whole section on trials? Verse 18, he chose to give us birth. Now that is not talking about physical birth. That is talking about Spiritual birth is talking about what the New Testament calls the new birth, the free gift of salvation, that you can know God, that you can be free from all of your guilt and your shame, and that you can live with him forever. It is the greatest thing that this birth that James is talking about, it is the greatest thing that could ever happen to a person. And how is it made possible? How does it come about? What does God use Well, look at the rest of the sentence. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. What is the word of truth? That phrase appears five times in the New Testament. Five times. And each time, it is a reference to the gospel. I'll give you just one example. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. The gospel of your salvation. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus lived the life we should have lived. And that on the cross, he died the death that we should have died so that we might have a new birth. And you see, here is the last point. Living faith, it doesn't just expect trials. It doesn't just endure them. It's not just hopeful in them. But living faith always comes back to the cross. In trials. It always comes back to the gospel because the cross is the ultimate proof that God can use the worst things for good things. If you were wondering how God could possibly bring good out of your suffering, look at the cross. The cross is the most evil, the most wicked, it is the saddest thing that has ever happened in human history. The source, the fountain of all goodness and all beauty and all justice suffered the most unjust and the most cruel death imaginable. And what came out of it? New birth. Salvation. Life with God forever. 
Do you see the point? God used the worst tragedy in the history of the world to bring about the greatest gift the world could ever receive. You see, if God can bring good out of the cross, he can bring good out of anything. If he can work in Jesus' suffering, he can work in yours. And this is why you have to go back to the cross again and again and again in your trials. And it is why, friends, it is why God brings us to this table week after week. This table points us to the ultimate proof that God can and does use every trial. That God is good even when our circumstances aren't. And that joy is possible even when life is really hard. You know, we've talked a lot about having joy in our trials today. But what is it that enabled Jesus to have joy in his trial? What has it enabled him to endure, to persevere, to not give up, to not lose hope? Hebrews 12 actually tells us. Hebrews 12 says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy set before Jesus. Have you ever wondered what that joy could be? You say, well, you know, maybe it's sitting at the right hand of the Father. No, Jesus always had that. But the joy set before him, the only thing that Jesus did not have before the cross, that he had after the cross, was us. We are his joy. He endured the darkest trial imaginable for you. And when you see that, to the extent that you see that, when you look at the cross, you will be able to endure your trials for him. And you'll expect them. You won't be surprised by them. And you will be able, friends, to have a defiant, stubborn hope, no matter what life brings at you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table and and we need it so desperately because there is a lot of pain in this room this morning. There are a lot of tears. There are a lot of trials. And there is a lot of suspicion about your goodness in the midst of all of it. And yet, here we see it on full display at this table that you took on suffering for us and you endured for us, and you have set your joy upon us. So would you 
Give us all of the help that we need this morning to believe these things as we come to this table because we need your help. You tell us that faith is a gift and so we ask for it because ours is weak and it is feeble, but you are strong and your love is unwavering. And so we cast ourselves upon it this morning as we come to this table in Christ's name, amen.